so great to be with you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Mary Ann. I'm the pastor to women. have the great privilege also of being part of the preaching team. So it's wonderful to be with you this morning. I returned last week from a trip to Boston where I gathered with some seminary students that I had not seen since COVID began. I um, am a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston, and these are my friends that I had the great joy of seeing. We've been studying together for the past three years, and we missed seeing each other last year because of COVID, so we just spent two weeks together in our Boston residency. We are a group of pastors and chaplains from around the United States. Uh, We also hail from Australia and from the Cayman Islands, and we are working on our doctorates in uh, spiritual formation. Not only do we come from a lot of different places, but we also come from a lot of different faith backgrounds. We are a group of Anglicans, Evangelicals, Presbyterians, Pentecostals. We come from backgrounds in the Catholic Church, in the Baptist Church, Calvary Chapel, Assemblies of God. So we have this very diverse way in which we like to engage with God in various faith practices and worship styles. But the one conviction that we all share, we all share the same conviction, and that is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. That is our conviction. Amid this great diversity, we have this beautiful unity around our common conviction about Jesus. So I've been thinking a lot this week about the word conviction. I've been thinking a lot this week about that word. In this past year, we have experienced a lot of disunity around our convictions as they relate to maybe health and safety regarding protocols with COVID, as maybe it relates to our um, social or political convictions. Convictions are an important facet of who we are. Um, Convictions reflect our core values, which actually shape our character. The dictionary defines a conviction as a fixed or firm belief. So, in other words, it's an unshakable confidence in something that will stand up under pressure. Now, that's unlike a preference, which may be a strong belief today, but tomorrow under different circumstances might change. A conviction in your heart will manifest itself in your life decisions. It will actually feel like a violation for you to do something that goes against your core convictions. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What is your conviction about Jesus Christ? Who do you believe that Jesus Christ is? I'm asking you to think about this question this morning because we're going to be diving into Luke chapter 23 verses 1 through 25. And this is the question that the religious leaders Pontius Pilate and King Herod had to answer when they were confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Now, last week, you might remember that Peter also struggled with this question. He struggled with courage in his core conviction about who Jesus was when he was confronted by a servant girl in the courtyard. You remember? 
Pastor Christopher actually helped us understand how disillusionment, fear, and shame played into this role of distancing Peter from Jesus at a moment that then fostered a a vulnerability to temptation from sin and Satan. And now Luke is turning our attention back to Jesus. He's turning us back to Jesus where Jesus has been arrested and he's been brought before the religious leaders for his first trial. So at the same time that Peter is so vehemently denying any knowledge of Jesus, Jesus has been now before the religious leaders. He's been beaten, he's been accused, he's been ridiculed, he's been mocked because he simply has proclaimed himself to be the son of God. This is where we are this morning as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. I'm calling this message, Three Mock Trials, because we're going to look at three trials. First, we're going to look at Pilate's, Jesus being brought before Pilate. We're going to see that in the first five verses. So if you're a note taker, you'll want to mark this down. Then we're going to see how Jesus is sent to Herod. We're going to see that in verses 6 through 12. And then we see how Jesus is returned to Pilate in verses 13 through 25. But here is the key insight I really would love for us to walk away from today with this thought. What we believe about Jesus is the crucial conviction of our lives. What we believe about Jesus is the crucial conviction of our lives. Let me pray before we open our text together. Father, we come before you and we confess that we can't know Jesus. We can't have a true conviction about Jesus without your Holy Spirit moving on our hearts. We come to you with a lot of baggage. Sin has clouded our view of Jesus. Our circumstances, our desires distort the word We come with so much distortion when we come to the gospel, and we need you, Lord, this morning to, by your spirit, just clear our sight, unpack our hearts, tender us to hear from your spirit this morning, that we might really discern what we believe about Jesus, who Jesus truly is. Would you help us today? Please choose each word that comes out of my mouth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, grab your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 23. What we find as we jump into this passage is that the hearts of the religious leaders are so hardened against Jesus at this moment that they're intent upon destroying him in whatever way they can. But they know they actually can't kill him themselves because that's against the law. They're under Roman rule at this time. So they're going to need the Roman government to do it for them. Let's look at verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So the religious leaders are also known as the Sanhedrin. 
And they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate because he is the governor over the area of Judea at the time, and he's the only one who could approve the death penalty. Now, normally, I have maps so you can see, normally, Pilate lived in Caesarea by the sea, kind of up north by the sea, but he is in Jerusalem at this time because it's the time of the Passover, and millions and millions of people have come to Jerusalem for the celebration, and Pilate would have been concerned about any civil disturbances that would have erupted at the time that would diminish his reputation as overseer over the providence under Caesar. Historically, Pilate and the Jewish people had a very antagonistic relationship. They did not like each other very well. And the religious leaders knew that Pilate is not going to care anything about their sacred laws. It won't matter to him at all if Jesus is breaking their sacred laws. And so they present Jesus to Pilate as a political rabble-rouser. They present him as an insurrectionist. And they charge him with three political offenses. First, they say that he was perverting the nation. Then they say that he was opposing paying taxes to Caesar. And last, they say that he was claiming to be king. Now, was Jesus guilty of these charges? The first charge is basically implying that Jesus was corrupting the cultural practices of the nation by, that were established under Roman dominion by stirring the people up into a rebellion that he was inciting them to rebel against their government. And the way he was doing that is in charge number two, they say he was, he was prohibiting the people from paying their taxes to Caesar, their poll tax. But of course, that is a blatant lie. And I know that because the last sermon I preached was on Luke 20. And that was when we knew that Jesus specifically told the people that they were to pay to Caesar what belong to Caesar. And Jesus says, whose face is on that coin? Is it Caesar's? Then give your money to Caesar. Because Jesus says, but you give yourself to God because you are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. So we know very clearly that Jesus did not tell the people not to pay their taxes. In fact, he told them, yes, pay your taxes. But it's the third charge that Pilate really zeroes in on when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And in fact, Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is actually a true charge. But did you notice how Jesus responds? Very slyly. He says, you say so, or so you say. He very gently tosses that ball of accusation right back onto Pilate. Now, I imagine that Pilate had interrogated a lot of angry insurrectionists in his day. And here Jesus is before him, and he appears so mild. He's so mild-mannered. Jesus is at perfect peace. He is completely calm. He's in fully in control of his emotions. This is not what political insurrectionists look like before a Roman governor. Pilate can't imagine that this man is any threat to the city. And so he tells the religious leaders and their followers that he finds no fault in Jesus. It's quickly, very quickly obvious to him that Jesus is no threat to his power or position. But the religious leaders, they, they need Pilate. They need him to act on their behalf. So they begin to press him even harder. They say, you know, don't you know that this man is stirring up a rebellion by your, his teachings? Don't you know that people are following him? Don't you know that people are worshiping him as king? And of course, this was just all a smokescreen to hide their own real objection to Jesus. 
because they don't care about Pilate's reputation as governor. They don't even like him. What they care about is that they don't want to lose their own position of privilege and power in the Jewish society. Jesus had been rocking their world with his teachings. He had been exposing the true heart of God for his people. And that was in stark contrast to the cold-hearted leadership that the religious leaders had had over the Jewish people. I have an insight about this Our core desires can undermine our convictions. Our core desires can undermine our convictions. If you think about it, the core desire of the religious leaders was to exterminate Jesus so that they could maintain their their positions of power and privilege in Jewish society. And what's astounding is they would rather murder him than actually decline in status, lose their status in society. That's astounding. And then the core motivation of Pilate is that he doesn't want, he wants to avoid any controversy during the Passover that would diminish his reputation before those in power above him. So in both of these cases, the underlying desires of these leaders superseded any conviction, any true conviction that they had about Jesus. What they wanted for themselves was more important than the fact that they were standing before the Son of God. They were standing before the very one who was preparing to go to the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. Wow. But how do our core desires affect our convictions about Jesus? How do our core desires affect our convictions about Jesus? How does our desire for independence and autonomy keep us, our independence and autonomy keep us from surrendering our whole selves to the Lordship of Christ? How does our desire for freedom and self-sufficiency blind us to the reality of our desperate need for God's love and grace? How does our thirst for power drive us to lord over people rather than to come under and serve them in Jesus' name? In what ways do our convictions about Jesus, in what ways are they clouded by our own selfish desires rather than by the truth about who he is? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. How do our core motivations challenge or change or distort our convictions about who Jesus is. Well, at the mention of Galilee, Pilate sees a way out of this very tense situation with these religious leaders. So he says, okay, great. Let's send Jesus to King Herod. Let's look at this next section, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. 
And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. King Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee, and he also was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus had just spent the last three years of his life and ministry living in Galilee. That's where he was teaching the word of God. It's where he was healing people who were sick. It's where he was casting out demons. It's where he was training up his disciples. And so he was very well known in that area. Now, Herod had never met Jesus personally, but he had encountered some of Jesus' followers. In fact, he had met John the Baptist. John the Baptist had gone to Herod and, and told him that it was unlawful for Herod to marry his brother Philip's wife, and Herod didn't like that, and his wife didn't like it, and so Herod had John the Baptist beheaded and then took his head and put it on a platter and paraded it around at his birthday party. So he amused himself by making fun of people and he lorded his power over people in vicious ways. Herod is a cruel and ruthless king. But for Pilate, Herod is the next step in determining Jesus's guilt because Herod was a strong ally of Rome and he also was very knowledgeable about Jewish culture, especially when it came to events that were happening in and around Galilee. So when the religious leaders show up at Herod's place with Jesus, he is so excited to meet this miracle man. And he had heard so much about him. But previously, Herod had publicly expressed his desire to kill Jesus. And in fact, Jesus had been warned earlier that he was to stay away from Herod. Herod was very dangerous and had an intent upon killing him. But now, Herod is just so curious to see if Jesus might entertain him with some magic tricks. And what does Jesus do? He's mute. Jesus refuses to perform for Herod. He's perfectly and completely silent. He knows the heart condition of Herod. He knows that Herod's intention is just to be dazzled by Jesus. And Herod has no power if Jesus won't speak. And so not only will Herod not see a supernatural sign, he won't even hear a supernatural sign. And then this reminds us of a prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 7, which says this about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Herod's vile approach to Jesus literally silenced the voice of God. God will not be mocked. And Jesus' silence was indicative of God's sovereign control over this entire situation. Nothing that we're talking about today happened outside of God's divine design. Every one of these mock trials is moving Jesus just one step closer to the cross, which is God's perfect plan. It's his perfect plan. Then when the religious leaders, you might have noticed, then tried to escalate the situation, they tried to increase their, their accusations now even more vehemently against Jesus, and then Herod allows his soldiers to dress Jesus up in royal robes. And this is so ironic because the more they try to ridicule him, the closer they get to the truth about who he is. 
because Jesus is the true king of the Jews. And now he looks like one too. Here's another insight. Our convictions about Jesus must be based on the truth of God's word. Our convictions about Jesus must be based on the truth of God's word. Both Pilate and Herod, they find no guilt in Jesus. No matter how riled up we find the religious leaders are getting, and no matter how much they continue to insist that Jesus was a threat to the region, neither of them took Jesus seriously enough to, to consider it any concern. The problem is, Jesus was of concern. While he may have not been guilty of insurrection, he is nevertheless the Son of God. He is king of creation, maker of heaven and earth. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that includes Herod's knee and tongue, Pilate's knee and tongue, your knee and tongue, and my knee and tongue. What we believe about Jesus must be grounded in the truth of God's word. And the truth of God's word is is what we find in scripture. Do you know that in scripture, there are over a hundred names that describe Jesus, who he is, what he does, what his role and function, what his titles are. I'll just give you 30 to just whet your appetite and you can go back and find more. Jesus is our advocate. He is our almighty God. He is the author of life. He is the bread of life. He is the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone, the Christ, the Messiah, our deliverer, our eternal life. Jesus is faithful and true, our good shepherd, our great high priest, head of the church, the holy one. Emmanuel, God with us, king of kings, lamb of God, light of the world, Lord of lords. He is mighty God, power of God, resurrection and the life, God the son, son of man, eternal salvation, the way, the truth, the life, the wisdom of God, and he is the word of God. That's just a taste of what Jesus is. And there's so much for us to learn about Jesus. We will never be done discovering new things about him, ever. Are you curious to know more about him? Are your convictions about him based on the truth of his word? Are you regularly studying the Bible in, with a concentration on spiritual growth and heart transformation? Not just head knowledge, not just to learn more, but to know God more so that you can be changed. Knowing God and his word has dramatically changed my life. I have been in an inductive Bible study, which simply means a Bible study that studies the Bible using the Bible. I've been in inductive Bible study since I was 28 years old. And my life has been dramatically changed by the study of God's word. I highly recommend that every person engage in studying the Bible in community with other people. There are studies here at River West for men and for women. There are there. Are Our River Bible study is a study that I lead. We're launching in the fall with a study of Acts. We're going to be studying the first church because we believe God is doing a new thing in his church, and we're going to go back and learn what he did in the very first church. There's summer studies. There's community groups. There's all kinds of ways that you can engage. And so I just want to encourage you that if you are not connected to other people in a study around God's word, come and see me. Let me help you get connected.
There's so much for us to learn together about Jesus, and we want to be sure that our beliefs are rooted in the truth of God's word. Well, after making a mockery of Jesus, interestingly, Herod and Pilate, uh, two former enemies, were bonded now over their common ridicule of this Jewish king. Let's look at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. So both Pilate and Herod agree that Jesus was innocent of all of the charges that the religious leaders have brought against him. And so he offers to make a compromise. He basically says, I'll scourge him or I'll flog him, which means that he will be beaten with a whip that has metal pieces in it. And everyone would see his gruesome punishment, and then Pilate would just let him go. Because it was customary during the Passover for the governor to release one prisoner, to set one prisoner free. And so he thought, this is perfect. Jesus will be that guy. We'll just set Jesus free after I punish him. But Pilate makes two erroneous assumptions. Because first, he assumes that by publicly humiliating Jesus, the religious leaders are going to be appeased. He thinks that'll, that'll make them happy. And secondly, he assumes that the crowds are going to be happy to have an innocent prisoner, prisoner released into society versus someone like Barabbas, who is, is, is a guilty insurrectionist and murderer. Unfortunately, he was wrong on both accounts because the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. They didn't want him beaten. They wanted him killed. And Pilate now begins to know that there is something very dark and sinister going on here, that what's happening is, um, is very evil. We'll get, we'll get back to that in a second because I, wanted, I forgot to tell you the second thing. The second thing is that crowds are worked up into mass hysteria. The crowds are so in such an emotional, illogical frenzy at this moment that Pilate misunderstood, misread how they would respond to Jesus being beaten and Barabbas being, um, Jesus being released instead of Barabbas. So let's go on now to verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release us to Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Here's the irony. Barabbas is in prison for the one thing that the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of. He's in prison for insurrection, plus he's a murderer. Jesus was a peacemaker. He was opposed to any kind of violence. And yet the crowds are demanding that he should be crucified. What are they thinking? Why are they, why are they demanding Jesus, an innocent man, be crucified? And they want Barabbas, a very frightening, a very evil, a murderer, released back onto their streets. And this is where Pilate is beginning to think that this is bigger. There's something bigger going on here because this is completely illogical. 
And he's beginning to notice that something dark, something very evil is happening. And you know, that's the nature of evil. Evil is not orderly. It doesn't make sense. Evil is random. It's chaotic. It's nonsensical. It's unreasonable. It's disorderly. And Pilate is beginning to think that this thing with Jesus has now escalated way out of control. In fact, Matthew records a warning that Pilate had received from his wife just that morning. It's in Matthew 27, verse 19, where she, when he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him and said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So something is happening here that is out of Pilate's control. Now, even though the crowds are shouting and everything that's happening defies all logic, we see that Pilate still tries. He presses in one more time. He tries again to address the crowds with his intent to release Jesus, but their voices were too strong and his convictions were too weak. Verse 24 so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So Pilate condemned to death a man he found innocent, and he released and freed a man he found guilty. He succumbed to the pressure of the people and then Jesus moved just one step closer to the cross. Here's an insight. Our conviction about Jesus must be based on the truth about ourselves. Our convictions about Jesus must be based upon the truth about ourselves. What is that truth? The truth is, I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. We're Barabbas. We're the guilty one deserving of death and punishment because of our sins. We're the one who's the rebel, the murderer, the insurrectionist, the thief, the liar, the cheater. That's us. We are the one who has been found guilty because of our sins before a holy, sinless, and perfect God. We're the ones that are so full of self-righteousness that we're just imprisoned by our sinful desires and helpless to free ourselves from the bondage of guilt and shame. Our sin has literally locked us in death row. But miraculously, we are set free because Jesus goes to the cross instead of us. He's the one who goes and pays the punishment that we deserve. Do you believe that? Is that your conviction about Jesus? Jesus is the sinless son of God who died in our place so that we could be forgiven and set free. He's the one who was beaten. He's the one who shed his blood. He's the one who gave up his spirit. He's the one who died in body. He's the one who was raised to new life so that we could be raised to new life, so that we could be forgiven and set free. Because he died, we live. Because Jesus went to the cross, Barabbas went free. Because he died, we live. And so I want us to just reflect for another moment on that question that we started with this morning. What is your conviction about Jesus Christ? Who do you believe he is? 
Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? That all of these mock trials were part of God's plan for you to help you be free to live, to release you from the power and the penalty of sin and death. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And if he is, how does your conviction about who Jesus is shape your character and shape your lifestyle? The decisions that you make, the ways that you engage in life. How does the reality of what, who you believe Jesus to be color everything else about who you are? And if you aren't yet convicted that Jesus is Lord and Savior, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors. Let us help you discover who Jesus is. Because what we believe about Jesus is the crucial conviction of our lives. What we believe about Jesus, there's no other conviction that's more important than that. He is the crucial conviction of our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we can't come to faith in Jesus without your Spirit's help. And so again, I pray that you would show us this morning where are our desires in conflict with the truth about Jesus? How are we misunderstanding who he is because we're not rooted in his word? We're not rooted in community. How are we not seeing ourselves rightly as the one who has been set free because of Jesus' death on the cross. Lord, we need your help. Would you please, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to believe, to receive you as savior, and to step into the freedom of life that you offer us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.